thrown from the windward rail to the leeward rail in the water, uh, underneath the boom, mass flat in the water, middle of the night, probably blowing, well, I think the coxswain said it was 50 knots or something. The waves being blown flat, so you know how bad it is then. And I'm underneath the sail, and I remember thinking, this is how it ends. And it's quite sobering. And even now, where are we now, 12 years later, it's, it's not something I've really spoken about. My name's James Gaskin. Uh, my connections to the lifeboat uh, run long and deep, I think is the best description for them. Firstly, I was a crew member of West Kirby uh, for seven or eight years on the ILB here. Uh, D-class from, oh, crew from 18, but certainly involved from, from very young. Um, all our family were and all my friends were. So we grew up kind of in and around sailing and the lifeboat, and it was just a natural progression to join the lifeboat. Uh, my elder brother's on the lifeboat. He's been on five of them, I think, and he works with the lifeboat. My uncle was on the lifeboat uh, on my mum's side. My uncle on my dad's side did a lot of fundraising for Hoylake. And then my great uncle was coxswain of Hoylake and was instrumental in getting the ILB to West Kirby. And the last connection is my mum was out sailing on the river just behind us, uh, a cadet, well, if she's 72 now, so a long time ago, um, with a friend of hers and the lifeboat arrived and my great uncle wanted to try it out. So he launched it on the day it arrived and went to pick up my mum and said, you're being rescued. She wasn't very happy about that and had a bit of a fit. Um, he then proceeded to tow her ashore and told her she was the first person to be rescued by West Kirby lifeboat. And 55 years later, more, probably 60 years later, she still hasn't lived it down. So she still swears now, I didn't need rescuing, that was Great Uncle Harry's fault. So we've always grown up with, with the lifeboats in the family and, and being involved in it, really. I think it's just one of those places, certainly for us with a connection to, to the sea, to the lifeboat, to sailing, to the area, um, it's a nice place to, to grow up and live and, and bring your kids up and the connections run very deep. It's beautiful on a day like today but it's also very understated but it, it can be terrifying as well. My grandparents on both sides um, always sailed so we've, we've never not had boats really uh, or been around them um, my granddad used to build boats and things like that so from as long as early as I can remember we had a chisel in our hand or something in the garage in the winter watching him build something um, so they're just the part of the fabric of us really I've always grown up doing lots of sailing uh, I was living in Amsterdam for four years and pff, pure stupidity I decided I know I'll do some single-handed and double-handed sailing uh, out of France so I bought a uh, mini Transat, which is a small 21, 22 foot single-handed boat um, for sailing across the transatlantic and they do lots of racing of these in, in France. It's very strict in the qualifications for what you need to do. You need to do a certain number of miles on your own, a certain number of miles with somebody else, then you need to do lots of courses. So it's very safety orientated. And the last thing I had to do was a thousand mile qualifier. So on my own. I set off from a place called Douarnenez, which is just west of Brest. Um, on the west coast of France and headed south down to La Rochelle, round uh, 
then came north and then was going to head all the way up to Southern Ireland and then back to Duanonay, and that was the 1,000-mile course. Uh, so it was all set, all navigation, all safety gear, everything organised as much as you could. And I kind of think it's kind of hard for me to admit, but the, the thing that happened, which I'll tell you about, was basically down to a wrong decision. And it still galls me now because I'd spent years preparing not to make that wrong decision. But even when I was in the situation, I couldn't not make the wrong decision. Uh, and it's still it's quite hard to talk about. So um, some beautiful bits of the sail. Uh, I was coming up uh, by Lorient and uh, the stars and the sea out there and the phosphorescence and the just the feeling of it was just so beautiful. Um, but then also, the darker side of the, the sea, I literally, and this is where I did something right, I could just see a darkness coming towards me that I've just never experienced. Just, like, foreboding. Just, and I realised, right, well, this is, this, is, this is not whether I want to be in. So I reefed down, I made some food, I put a flask of tea on, all the essentials, um, got all the gear on, and kind of batten down the hatches. And then, and then this storm hit through the night. But it was fine, because I was kind of ready and prepared for it. But you, if you're doing that for kind of eight, nine days, you, you're absolutely exhausted. I remember I was coming round Land's End, westerly breeze, on starboard, about three miles offshore, because I remember thinking, oh, this is a bit too close for liking. Um, and it was breezy, and it was on course for where I wanted to be, to go through Ushant, down into Duanonay. Um, and I remember thinking, well, it's 90 miles, 90, 100 miles to go. And I was thinking, I'm doing 10 knots. I was thinking, oh, great, I'll be in in 10 hours. And it was just such a relief thinking, oh, I'll be back. But then you're in the English Channel. And what I should have done, hindsight's a beautiful thing, is just reef down, had a bit of a rest, taking it easy, and thought, well, I'll, I'll be in tomorrow lunchtime. What's what's another six hours? I've been here 10 days. But I didn't do that because I'm a human being. So what I did is, oh, well, I'll put the spinnaker up because that, that's fine, and I'll just and I'll stay on deck and I'll, I'll crack on. And was zipping along 12, 13 knots, thinking, brilliant, I'll be in in seven or eight hours' time. Uh, and I think I'd kind of mentally probably relaxed and thought, we'll be, I'll be there. And then got into the shipping lanes. The wind had knocked me quite a bit because I was then, in hindsight, knew I was south of the Lizard, which for those who know that coast, if you look at a map, is quite, it, I've, I've veered off quite a lot. Got hit by a squall in the middle of the night. And at this time, I'd probably been awake for, well, probably only a few hours sleep in 36 hours. And that's not very good for decision-making, is it? Let's be honest. So I got hit by a squall, and I was down below, mast flat in the water, kind of got up on deck, got managed to get the boat flat, tried to get the spinnaker down, that wouldn't happen, then got hit by a squall again, and I was on the windward deck, and then I kind of got... And I was always had a safety line on, always had a safety line on. If I didn't have a safety line on, I'd be dead. And it's just... That's clear to me. So I got thrown from the windward rail to the leeward rail, in the water, uh, underneath the boom, mass flat in the water, middle of the night, probably blowing, well, I think the coxswain said it was 50 knots or something. The waves being blown flat, so you know how bad it is then. And I'm underneath the sail, and I remember thinking, this is how it ends. And it's quite sobering. And even now, where are we now, 12 years later, 
it's it's not something I've really spoken about because I tell people I've written it down whatever oh yeah I got rescued but you don't go into the details of you're lying in the water and you think this is how it ends and it's I can't even describe it I then kind of untangle myself from the mess and get back on board the boat um, you're cold you're wet you're you're aching um, and then you're in 50 knots of breeze and there's ships around um, and then I kind of try and do a mayday on the radio because um, the masthead's been in the water the, the VHF just got damaged but I get a signal up a couple of miles and there's a fishing boat um, Crystal Sea I think it was called the fishing boat uh, and he was within about a mile of me and he, he kind of could see this happening um, so he relayed the message to the Coast Guard to get the lizard lifeboats out but he, he was an amazing fella because he just basically I was in the shipping lane and there were container ships within a mile of me so he basically said he just fished around me so this fisherman went round for like an, well until a lifeboat arrived so he just circled around me with his nets out and just put whatever because my radar deflector wasn't working but if I'd been in I was on the side I wasn't really deflecting much radar so he basically fished around me um, and called the lifeboat and then when the lifeboat got there and that's well 30 miles south of the lizard so it's four hours by the time they're there um, and I'm still I've got some I've got the main down tried to get the engine on uh, engines kind of cutting out intermittently um, spinnaker's wrapped around the top of the mast sails are kind of blown everywhere I had to cut the jib down um, so by the time the lifeboat gets here you're, you're up you're emotionally at zero you just I think you've, you've gone through reserves I've been awake far too long adrenaline's gone because it's this is now not fun <laughs> um, and and you but you just kind of I don't know I think you just keep you keep going that's what what humans do um, your survival instinct kicks in but I just remember the darkness it was just utterly pitch black and the howling noise of the waves and the sails slapping and everything it was just um, I guess it was just an attack on the senses really um, definitely had pneumonia by this point I'd say it was definitely hypothermic um, was just but you don't you don't realize you just carry on um, and then I remember the fisherman saying over the radio because I had a handheld as well right well the lifeboat's close and the first thing I could see was the big searchlight but the thing I remember is the noise of the Detroit diesels I know being a bit sad um, but the big diesels in in the time class I mean it, they don't have silences on those um, I could hear that way 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 before I could see anything and that was that was a comfort that they were there and then after I got the, the noise of the the engines that um, the coxswain got in contact with the radio and then we did AIS and, and various other things and they found me um, but it was the relief of hearing um, hearing the engines and at the time you don't think oh aren't they amazing they've come out here and done this but when you sit back and reflect you kind of go it was absolutely howling I mean, I've been sailing, I've done round island races and I've done big, and I've done things and I've been out in some weather, but it probably felt a lot worse because I was on my own. But to, to kind of think that these guys, yeah, and, and they said, and their words are, yeah, it's just a run of the mill. Their normal is not everybody else's normal. And okay, if I'd had 12 of my mates with me, I probably would, would have been different anyway. But when you're on your own and then you, they come over the horizon and it's the calm they bring, right, we're here. 
what's going on. Mm, yeah, you are you are in a bit of bother there. Right, we'll we'll, we'll help fix it. Um, and that's what they did. And then they uh, came alongside, checked I was okay. Um, and I probably just should have said, no, I'm not really. And they would have put someone on board. And I said, yeah, yeah I'm fine now because you're here. Um, but I remember then we got the toe connected. Uh, and it was quite strange. It was so dark. But because of the sea state, I was on such a long line, so it's got stretch. Um, I could literally, the boat would just disappear in the waves. And then you'd think, oh, I'm on my own again. And then, oh, there it is. Oh, good. And then you hear them again. Oh, they're there. Uh, but they always kept the spotlight on you so they could check that you were all right. Uh, and then kept in contact with the radio. And then I haven't got a clue how long the tow was, but I've read the report and it was like four or five hours or something uh, into Falmouth. The kind of gravitas of it, you don't, I guess you don't, you don't appreciate when you're in the middle of it. And, and I guess it's very easy to, well, it's not very easy, but as humans, you, you, you block it out and you just, that's what you do really. Because we're humans and we're you, you bravado, you think, ah, oh, no, it'd be fine. When really, if you stop and really think, you go, mm, right, okay. You're prepared, you know, you've got a life raft, you've got, you've got, you've got all the things, you've got food, you're prepared. But the bit that still galls is you, you make, you make a wrong decision. And it, it's as simple as that. You can make a, a wrong decision that you can't go back on. And very quickly it, it escalates and you're, and you're underneath the sail in the middle of the English Channel on your own. In the middle of the night in 50 knots of breeze. Came back 10, 12 years ago to the UK. Um, yeah, married, two stepchildren, two other children, granddaughter now. Oh, yeah, life, life carries on. Hello, it's Mary McAleese here. You've been listening to part of the RNLI's 200 Voices collection. To hear more remarkable stories, head to rnli.org 200 voices or subscribe to the RNLI wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Two Hundred Voices is an adventurous audio limited production for the RNLI.